Hello, I am Dr. Prathima Sethi, and I am your host for this segment on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. We have with us today Dr. Kurian Thote. Dr. Thote is a board-certified obstetrician-gynecologist who specializes in minimally invasive gynecologic surgery. He serves as the chief of the obstetrics and gynecology department at Stafford Hospital in Virginia. He sits on multiple boards and panels among various medical societies, including the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, the American Academy of Gynecologic Laparoscopists, and the Society of Laparoscopic Surgeons. He travels nationally and internationally training surgeons in the field of laparoscopic surgery. He is also the founder of the Women's Surgical Institute, a not-for-profit institute dedicated to training surgeons in minimally invasive surgery. Dr. Thought, thank you so much for being with us here today to talk about gynecologic minimally invasive surgery. Thank you, Dr. Seti. I appreciate the opportunity to speak with you and your listeners. Dr. Thought, in your opinion, how do you select patients for minimally invasive surgery? Who are the best candidates for this surgery? In the past, I think when we looked at minimally invasive surgery, we were much more skeptical or we really thought a little bit more deeply about which patients would be adequate for these procedures. And probably mainly because the surgical time for these procedures sometimes can be quite long. Now as surgeons have become more skilled and the technology has advanced in such a way that these procedures can be done much more quickly, in my opinion, I think almost every woman or every patient should be able to at least be considered for laparoscopic or minimally invasive surgery. So as far as hysterectomies go, that's one of the most common procedures that is done minimally invasive nowadays. How do you decide which type of approach you're going to take, abdominal, vaginal, supracervical, total laparoscopic hysterectomy. There's so many options. Absolutely. And prefacing that I'm a laparoscopic surgeon, my bias obviously is going to be somewhat more to the laparoscopic approach. There are going to be cases in which abdominal approaches are going to be important. Those cases would be sometimes advanced cancers, especially ovarian cancer. Those are going to be sometimes handled as open procedures. But I think when you come to benign surgery, the vast majority should be done through a minimally invasive approach. Of the minimally invasive approaches, vaginal surgery or vaginal hysterectomy is probably the original minimally invasive approach and, and should be considered in a lot of patients. And the American College of Obstetrician and Gynecologists, as well as AAGL, have made committee statements which basically validate a statement of that vaginal or minimally invasive approaches should be preferred choice for uteruses, especially less than 250 grams. That said, one of the, my slants towards laparoscopic surgery has always been the fact that we can have better visualization of the pelvis and the abdomen generally. When you do something laparoscopically, you kind of have a good global view of the entire pelvis and the entire abdomen, especially when you are worried about adhesions, other pelvic pathologies, and you want to really assess the ovaries, I think laparoscopic approach can be far superior to even vaginal approach. And can you comment on total laparoscopic hysterectomy versus supracervical? I think supracervical's kind of fallen out of favor nowadays. It's been a very interesting paradigm shift with supracervical hysterectomies now. Probably most surgeons were very comfortable with supracervical hysterectomies because it was essentially a quicker procedure, somewhat easier to handle. Uh, now that there's a lot of controversy around the morselator, more surgeons are now looking towards getting trained or now performing more total laparoscopic hysterectomies. There was some older ideology around that used to believe that by keeping the cervix, you enhance pelvic support. Those kind of ideas have been disproven several years ago and several times over. Especially in patients who've had abnormal PAPs, you should preferentially take out the cervix. 
I believe the total laparoscopic hysterectomy approach is going to be the better approach for most patients. So you mentioned the morselator and some of the controversies around that. Can you summarize for those of us who haven't been following what those controversies are? Controversy really started with an unfortunate case out of Massachusetts where a patient had surgery with the morselator and ended up with a very rare malignancy called leomyosarcoma, which made what would have been a grade one or two type disease to a grade four disease and obviously became very concerning. The FDA, of course, under pressure looked at that case as well as several other cases and looked at other studies and deemed that there was enough of a risk that they felt public awareness was not needed to give a warning regarding the morselator. Earlier in this month, there was a two-day hearing by the FDA looking at this very specific issue with the morselator. And I believe a lot of the societies really came out and presented really good data at this and probably gave the FDA a much more global, broader view of really what the risk factors are. I don't know where this is going to sit and where it's going to finally land with the FDA. I think we're all kind of waiting to hear what the final verdict is going to be on the morselator. I think there is a place for the morselator. However, industry is going to be now looking at more safer ways of performing morselation with less spread of any type of disease tissue. How do you use the morselator in your surgeries? Do you do extracorporeally, or what's your thoughts on that? With large uteruses, when you use a morselator, it's very difficult because you have a uterus that could be 1,500, 1,400 grams or larger, and using a morselator can be very time-consuming and truly somewhat painful for the surgeon to, to perform this. So extracorporeally morselating the uh, uterus tends to be a little bit faster and quicker, and of course you don't have a lot of the spread of tissue. In certain cases, when I do myomectomies laparoscopically, in the past when we did have the morselator available, I would use a morselator for smaller fibroids to remove them safely. But when I have large fibroids, I still really prefer the extracorporeal morselation where I just expand the umbilical incision a little bit to about two and a half centimeters through the umbilicus incision, and you can just bring out most of your specimens through that quite safely and still a very good minimally invasive approach for patients. So what are your thoughts on when to remove the ovaries and the tubes? Historically, in the past, we would see surgeons would perform a hysterectomy and then go right away, no matter what the age of the patient was, and take out the ovaries as well. Probably somewhat on a prophylactic approach to prevent ovarian cancer and things like that. Years later, we see, looking back retrospectively in studies, that that probably wasn't the best idea. Women are going to benefit from having their own hormones, especially premenopausal women. Having a hysterectomy should try to retain their ovaries. If there's a significant family history with either they themselves have had breast cancer or first-degree relatives, their mom or sisters have had ovarian cancer, then that's the time for that patient and their doctor to really have that conversation about their risk uh, and whether or not they should retain their ovaries and if they are going to undergo a hysterectomy. It's my belief that most women, especially premenopausal women with low risk, should keep their ovaries if at all possible. Interesting data that's come out probably from the last five years even looked at the potential that ovarian cancer might be originating from the fallopian tubes, in fact. I usually routinely remove the fallopian tubes during my hysterectomies, mainly as a remnant of my training where we used to always worry about pain regarding hydrosalphanx or cysts that would appear that might be ovarian cysts, but are actually really originating from the fallopian tube. And taking out those tubes at the time of surgery really just made things a little bit easier for us and for the patient. As far as the recovery of these patients, do you discharge them same day? And in what situations don't you do this? Do you have a certain regimen that you follow? About 60% of my patients in my practice will go home the same day. And a lot of that conversation 
and that decision-making actually happens preoperatively. We sit down, we talk to the patient preoperatively, talk about their surgery and what they're going to have, go over their consents, and it's usually at that time I really kind of ask the question, do you want to go home the same day or not? Because a big part of that patient wanting to go home is kind of a mental preparation that they want to go home and they're able to go home. Some patients are able to do this and some patients are not. The patients that are able to do that are, one, mentally prepared before that they want to go home. And then it's also important that I get my OR team involved in that process as well as my anesthesiologist, as well as my PACU, to make sure they're also prepared to get that patient home, making sure they're able to avoid after surgery and control their pain and nausea. Those are two aspects of symptoms that our patients are going to experience postoperatively that would actually probably keep them overnight. They have a lot of pain or just not able to control their pain or they're extremely nauseous, those are patients you definitely don't want to send home the same day because they will just turn around and come back to the ER later that night. Other patients who have comorbidities, either cardiac or pulmonary reasons, or maybe hypertensive patients or severely diabetic patients, they may require an overnight stay for further evaluation. And of course, some of your elderly patients may also require an overnight stay as well, just for some additional monitoring. Is there a certain pain regimen that you found that works well for patients in general? or? What I like to do is my anesthetic team, when they know a patient is definitely going to go home, we now have the ability to use IV Tylenol. IV acetaminophen has been very helpful for a lot of these patients. We also will use, for those patients we can, is IV Toradol as well postoperatively, and that's got a pretty good handle. IV Toradol does a really good job in handling their pain. I also use some local anesthetic around the incision sites just to give them some additional comfort around those port sites, which sometimes can be achy and hurt after surgery. And then, of course, aggressive control of their nausea. A lot of patients who can tolerate it, we use a scopolamine patch preoperatively, which has been very helpful to kind of offset some of the effects of anesthesia that they may experience. If you are just tuning in, this is Dr. Prathima Seti, and I'm your host for this segment on pearls in gynecologic minimally invasive surgery with Dr. Curry and Thought. Dr. Thote, what do you tell physicians who want to advance their skills in minimally invasive surgical techniques? What do you think is the best way for them to do this? And this is definitely one of my passion areas that I really enjoy is teaching and training surgeons. One of the things I would first try to encourage surgeons to do is really have that conversation with themselves and say, is this what I really want to do? Do I want to incorporate minimally invasive surgery into my practice? One, their patients are going to demand it and request it, and they should be prepared for that. Part of that preparation from the surgeon's side, especially surgeons who don't have a huge breadth of experience with laparoscopic or minimally invasive surgery, they're going to have to take some time to really go and get trained, attending courses, especially suture labs, suture courses, even cadaver labs, anything that industry sponsors or medical societies can sponsor, they should take the opportunity to attend those courses as much as they can. And also bringing back those skills that they learned at these courses back to their patients. One of the smart things I think surgeons should do is pick their patients appropriately when they first start to perform laparoscopic surgery. They shouldn't be picking cases that are very complex or patients who had a lot of comorbidities or previous surgeries or very large pelvic pathologies. Those are going to be difficult cases for a surgeon just getting started. It's going to lead to their frustration of laparoscopic surgery. And I think when surgeons start to commit themselves and they say, this is going to be part of my practice and I'm going to be advancing my own skill, they're going to start seeing that escalation in their skill set very, very quickly. I see that every time I train surgeons, whether it's suture labs or in my OR, always are certain moments when you can see the light bulb kind of turning on and they kind of get it and they understand it. And suturing is a big part of laparoscopic surgery. I think it's important that surgeons get very comfortable suturing. They have the, innate, they have the internal skill to do it. It's a lot of times just about practice, and I think they can do it perfectly well if they just dedicate that time for it. So what are some common pitfalls you see other physicians take in the OR when performing minimally invasive surgery? Well, I think some of the cases, like I alluded to earlier, was just 
not picking the cases appropriately. The surgeons pick cases with very large uteruses or multiple fibroids. And the surgeon's really spending a good part of that surgical time just trying to find normal anatomy again. And that becomes very frustrating for the surgeon. So really carefully picking the cases that are appropriate for the surgeon, their skill set is going to be important. One of the things I think that they can avoid certain pitfalls, of course, is seeking out mentors as well and finding other surgeons either in their own community or nearby communities that actually perform a fair amount of minimally invasive surgery that they can also mentor with and learn from other surgeons. I think there's lots of videos online nowadays from lots of either nationally or regionally well-known surgeons that I think is very important, at least for some certain tips and techniques that you can learn from other surgeons who are already very successful at minimally invasive surgery that any surgeon can definitely learn and acquire adapt very quickly into their practice. So what are some of your pearls of wisdom in the OR? I think one is when you are in the OR and you're starting to the case is position of the patient. I've been in cases several times where I just don't think they use enough steep tendonalberg to really visualize the pelvic organ. Gynecologic surgeons operate in the pelvis, so it's important that pelvis is visual. We can visualize and see very well. Another thing, for, especially for the female surgeons who tend to be more petite, maybe don't have the arm span that some of the male surgeons might have, suturing and performing surgery from both sides can be very difficult. And one of the techniques I've adapted with some of my colleagues is to actually have the anesthesiologist plane or tilt the table towards the surgeon. And that actually gives them a little more ability to operate much without stretching their arms across the patient, especially if patients tend to be a little bit more heavier or larger patient might be a little bit more difficult to get around. And by just tilting that table towards the surgeon actually helps quite a bit. Can you talk a little bit on your nonprofit organization, Women's Surgical Institute? So we started this back in 2013 and really was a arm of our fellowship program that we're planning to start here, hopefully in the next year at Stafford Hospital. And it was also an opportunity for us to really engage with both hospitals as well as industry to help promote teaching and training of surgeons by either sponsoring or providing one or two-day symposiums, courses, suture labs in our region that would help surgeons who can come from all over and learn and take take advantage of of these uh, what I call kind of little mini master courses where they can learn things very quickly, kind of high-impact type of courses that surgeons sometimes who are very busy don't have time to go away to a national four-day meeting, but can go to a regional conference and actually get something that's very high impact. So that was one of the ideas behind the Surgical Institute, the Women's Surgical Institute that we founded, was to really get surgeons engaged and passionate about minimally invasive surgery. And then, of course, helping them increase and expand their skill set. And I think that's always one of the important things to get surgeons out there and get them started is start with the basics and you start seeing them escalate their skill very, very quickly. And then they become very successful surgeons in their community. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Thote, for being here with us today. That was a great review on some pearls in the OR. Thank you so much for having me. I do appreciate it. If you missed any part of this recording, please find us on ReachMD.com to listen to this podcast. Thank you for joining us.